the reason I was in the ETBU highlights was I was trying to figure out how to pronounce the Platteville quarterback's name, whether it's Schutz, Schutz, it's S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. I'd say, I'd say Schutz, but I'm probably wrong. Well, Schutz is certainly a, uh, is a good way to start with that anyway. If, if, if you you risk if by going far afield, you risk uh, mispronouncing it in a uh, in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to pronounce it correctly. I've already done. I've already listened to Rowan's. Uh, I listened to Rowan's season preview, okay. so I could nail the pronunciation for my game ball. Dang, I am. Uh, I'm I'm feeling suddenly underprepared for this podcast. There's only one way to find out. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Welcome officially to the 2018 Division Three football season and to the 12th season of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. I'm Pat Coleman, editor-in-chief of the website, and joining me is the defense to my offense, or perhaps the offensive to my defensive, Keith McMillan. Uh, although I try not to be so defensive, and Keith probably tries not to be so offending, but... Uh, anyway, Keith, how many times were you delayed by lightning strikes this week? Lightning delayed my lawn mowing from Saturday to Sunday, but I was looking for an excuse to stay inside and watch games anyway. Unfortunately, I can't declare the push mower versus the grass and no contest, so unlike Huntington and Guilford, I eventually had to complete complete the job. I'd have called that a push anyway. Uh, lightning was just one delay for me, but it was more than enough, especially in the fourth game of a four-game weekend. I haven't had a 90-minute halftime like that since the uh, infamous Bridgewater-Johns Hopkins hand-dryer dry football game from 1999 that we used to talk about all the time. Um, you can find a link about that on the uh, podcast page. We're not going to relitigate 1999 uh, because, Keith, this is podcast number 200, which puts it on a pretty short list of things that we've done on this website 200 times other than you know argue with people who don't understand how the top 25 works. Uh, we haven't had 200 top 25 polls, but we've had 200 Team of the Week awards, and we've had 200-plus around the nation columns, but that's about it until now. Pat, we had a podcast before podcasts were cool, and I guess we've leaned into it over time because it gives us a chance to talk through weeks like this. Nobody in their right mind could process 113 games with 219 of the 250 teams in action, even if that action is over a few days instead of just on a Saturday. So although we've expanded into off-season interview podcasts and we'll be adding a late-week look ahead, the bread-and-butter pods over the 200 have been boiling down those big weeks into nationally significant takeaways and meandering off the beaten path to highlight some things you probably missed while you were with your team this weekend. So from number one on down to 250, we'll shine the light where it needs to be shined since every last one of us is here for the love of the game. Indeed. I mean, it's not because of the paycheck. Uh, a full week of games in the books, though, whether you're a top 25 team playing another top 25 team in week one or a, a top 25 team playing a bottom 25 team. Uh, OK, well, we don't want to reference those games, uh, and I would prefer those games didn't even get played. So we'll start with the one game between ranked teams and we'll move from there. Uh, the game between Wesley and DelVal obviously is a lot more than just, quote, you know, a r- game between ranked teams, as uh, you and I talked about on podcast 199. Mike Drass and Chip Knapp arrived at Wesley as assistant coaches in 1989, and Drass had been the head coach from 1993 until his passing this summer. So it was more than just a game for Wesley, which was opening at the stadium, which bears Drass's name, and with Knapp, the longtime offensive coordinator, now in charge. And the Wolverines had to figure out this careful balance of honoring the man that meant so much to them all and winning a game against a team that won in the playoffs last season. 
And as cliche as it is to assume what a person would have wanted after they passed, it's fair to say you wouldn't be honoring your coach if you didn't come out and play well. And it was a Friday game, weird weather, lightning delays, and man, it was anything but a regular game. Gordon Mann was on hand and he chatted about the balance and more with head coach Chip Knapp after the game. Gordon Mann for D3Football.com, joined by Coach Knapp of the Wesley Wolverines 1-0, 34-10 victory over Delaware Valley University tonight. Coach, you've had a lot of first games of the season, a lot of game days. How is this one different? <laughs> well, it's just getting to the uh, game. It took, you know, so long. We were looking forward to it for a long time. And, uh, you know, I felt a little pressure to fill the sh- shoes of, you know, legendary coach, Coach Dress. And then when we get to the game and then we can't play it for a while and then we get we then we finally start and then it gets called for lightning right as we're getting ready to run the first offensive play. And I'm like, this is kind of like a bad dream that I have some of these (laughs) dreams I have where I can't get to the field or something. So so, uh, you know, but uh, getting through it and we had to really earn it, you know, with with uh, with the effort, the whole energy we had to put into into tonight. And uh, so it's 1130 at night. We we got our first win. How did you guys balance preparation with emotion? Getting ready with the, with the Drass, uh, you know, events tonight. Uh, first game without him. Um, preparing for a, for a quality opponent. How did how did you balance that? I thought you guys, you know, emotionally came out fine, uh, but then with the weather, how did you manage all of that? Well, the one thing our guys were excited the whole time. I mean, when they they, they heard that we had uh, you know two minutes till our our second start, they got all <laughs> fired up, and that was that was great to see. You hear about teams coming out flat, um, and and what we've done is we've just uh, you know it's it's a combination of uh, remembering Coach Dress and trying to move forward, and we we uh, you know we took the things that were important to Coach Dress and we applied them to our team, and they're, they're the same things that I believe in. And, you know, Coach and I have been together 29 years. Right. And uh, so we just we, we talked about the great things that Coach Drass brought to the program. And, and uh, you know, the guys, uh, all the guys on the team were recruited by him or knew Coach Drass. So it was easy for them to understand and relate to what we were trying to do there. So. So a big night for Alex Kemp. You told me before we went on that uh, kind of a special story for him, two touchdowns, long touchdowns, and uh, someone who had a special relationship with Coach Drass. Yeah, uh, Alex and Alex and uh, Coach, uh, you know, he, Coach recruited him, and, and you know, it's kind of a father-son relationship. He was real broke up, you know, when Coach Dress passed. And, and he wasn't, you know, he had his senior year. He had an extra year to play, but he decided at the end of the season that he wasn't going to play. And Coach Dress was a master psychologist. He says, just, let's just slow play this. Let's don't, you know, bug him about it. Let, he'll, he'll get the feeling. I know Alex. And, uh, you know, Alex came to us at the memorial service. He came to me and he said, Coach, I'm playing. And uh, that got the ball rolling. He had an internship in Colorado. And uh, he had to drive uh, for, for school. He, he had an inter- internship. He had to drive, uh, you know, like, I don't know how long couple days to get across and he yeah. showed up at practice he snuck on the field and, and jumped me from behind and said I'm here and that was uh it, you know it was great to see him he's, he's a great guy to coach too he's got a great personality great energy so it was uh we were we were elated to see him and uh you know and and he just took me uh you know picked up where he left off last year because I don't know how he did it but he, he that's what he that's what he did tonight last question for you we're about 10 minutes away from midnight because yeah. of the uh because of the late start you know, what are you thinking as you as you leave here, one and zero, first victory as a head coach? Well, I tell you what, I've been going uh, full go from about May fifteenth to now, pedal to the metal, nonstop. 
and I, I'm, I'm going to take the day off tomorrow since we have the bye week. I'm going to take a nap is what I'm going to do and enjoy my family. And uh, and uh, we've never taken a day off in football season, but I, I'm going I'm to do that uh I'm going to do that tomorrow. On what you were mentioning earlier, Keith, I think we just have to come out and say something here, or at least I do. People don't want to consider or hear that Wesley might take a step back this season, but it's definitely possible. Even if Knapp co-head coached with Drass, which he did not, and that's been established here and in previous interviews, there's still the fact that Drass was this persona who could change people's lives just by the sheer force of his personality. We can tell that despite never having played for the guy. Isn't it possible that those intangibles have an impact on Wesley that will win them an extra game here and there? Oh, I think Wesley may even be able to ride the emotion for a little bit for a part of the season. And, and we've seen him do that before when, when uh, Chip Knapp's son you know, had that um, situation a few years ago. And, and, and that really, I feel like Wesley sort of tapped into that and, and drew some emotion from that. So we know that's a program that can tap into the emotion and play well and ride that for several weeks where you really are going to miss Coach Strass. And I think Wesley had a great set of coaches, and they should probably be fine on the field this year. They hired a good a defensive coordinator to to try to come and fill Coach Strass's shoes. But really where I think they miss him is in recruiting. So it may be a couple years down the line because anytime you've been somewhere for 30 years, you have just ties with high school coaches. And those high school coaches are a lifeblood, especially for a D3 program where, you know, the, the coaches are not just looking for guys who can play, but guys who can qualify academically, who uh, sometimes got, they're looking for some, they know they have a kid in high school who has potential and just needs the right kind of guidance. And they would, you know, you send players like that to a coach you trust, like Coach Strass. So I think, and again, that, that sheer, that, that force of personality, I'm sure played well on the recruiting trail. So that may be where, where we see uh, Wesley figure out how they're going to fill those shoes. But I think this season right now, they have plenty of talent. Um, you know, the, some of the players they have back, Alex Kemp is back. Um, the quarterback from last season is back. So I, I think they'll probably be in pretty good shape for a good portion of this season. And they certainly look like it on Friday night. Friday and Thursday were really great days in terms of having just a, a good mix of pretty good games. Saturday, maybe not so much. Yeah, it really wasn't a great week overall as far as upsets or exciting finishes or milestones. Most of the top teams did what we expected them to do on Saturday, but Thursday and Friday were pretty exciting. Rowan rallied from two touchdowns down twice to beat Widener in double overtime. UW Platteville had his 42-7 second half, and you think, wow, that's amazing. How can anyone have a rally from, from <laughs> a halftime deficit yeah. and outscore the other team 42-7 to seven in the second half? Johns Hopkins did the same thing on the same day. Uh, each on, on Thursday rallied from, uh, from halftime deficits. Platteville, they were down 20 at halftime. Johns Hopkins wasn't down by nearly as much, but they, uh, they put 42 on Randolph-Macon in the second half, dear. Alma mater. And then Wesley had a 21-0 second half against Delaware Valley. And then there were the lightning delays, first on Friday, then on Saturday, and one game even got played on Sunday. That Platteville game, Keith, I see them go down 20 points at the half, and I'm thinking, you know, East Texas Baptist is capable of giving up as many points as it scores, maybe, uh, capable of giving up more points than it scores. I didn't really, I wasn't too particularly concerned for the top 25 should we say at that point even with our number 16 team down by three touchdowns on the road at the half well you were at at a game on thursday night 
Yeah. I was trying to, to flip between uh, those two games primarily um, because those were the two that were most interesting to me. And as, as soon as East Texas Baptist started pouring it on Platteville in the first half, I thought, well, this is really one game to pay attention to. And then uh, Randolph-Macon was going back and forth with Johns Hopkins, score for score. And that was that was getting interesting. So it's kind of flipping between the two. But what stood out to me in the first half was East Texas Baptist had the athletes to match up with Platteville when they go four wide and five wide. And that's pretty much their entire offense. Even when they have a back in the backfield, they line up five wide motion, the back to the backfield. So you have to have defensive backs to, to really be able to hold up over the course of a, a half or a game against Platteville. But also when you pass that much, as much as Platteville does, it helps to get in a rhythm. And, and we saw in the, in the third quarter, they're, they're down 37-17 at halftime. So obviously they're going to go in halftime, make some adjustments, try to get themselves together. But I thought when they came on the third quarter, Colin shoots, and I hope I'm uh, pronouncing the quarterback's name right. He got in a rhythm, hit four passes to four different receivers. Um, and, and they scored quickly, blocked a punt, scored again. And then all of a sudden it was pretty much back to a tie game and they ended up winning that one going away 59-44. UW Oshkosh had an interesting game on Saturday as well. We'll tackle that a little bit later in our rundown here on this podcast. Uh, but how about uh, UW Whitewater on Saturday? Yeah, that that was probably the most impressive Saturday game to me. There were certainly some results around the country that were interesting, and we'll get to those. But Whitewater had a pretty solid matchup. Dubuque is a was an eight win team two seasons ago and three seasons ago. Won six games last season. Stan Zweifel knows Whitewater well, and the first half of that game or at least maybe the first quarter, 7-6 game for a while there. Whitewater certainly didn't blow Dubuque out, but they just wore them down over the course of the game as they want to do. Cole Wilbur, some big completions, had a fourth and nine. He completed for 21 yards, something to that effect. Hit a big third and nine that extended a drive. And then the, the defense was outstanding. So even though you, know, you may look at the box score of that game, see the running back with four touchdowns, it wasn't a game where they – Ran, ran like crazy over Dubuque. I think they only had like 3.5 yards per carry. But they did it with that same formula that they did, that they won with for 10, 12 seasons, uh, and, and they became a dominant program. And that, to me, stood out, and that would worry me if I was uh, one of the other two WIAC programs that played uh, that that's expected to contend this season. I guess it's more than two, but to be fair. If I were Whitewater, though, I'd be worried about Wilbur completing just 11 out of 25 passes. I know you said you got, obviously, there's some key ones, and they did win the game, and they won it going away, but it seems like that's been something that's been a, a bugaboo of his. People still say bugaboo. I hope that's okay, uh, of his for uh, the entire time he's been the starting quarterback. Yeah, and it's fair criticism. There were also, there's at least one play I can think of that I watched where it was, where it was a, a corner route, goes right through the wide receiver's hands, uh, so Wilbur has some nice balls, and they're not always on him, but certainly you'd like to see better than 11 or 25. I know you were watching a bunch of games Saturday. I was watching a bunch of games this weekend in person. I like to take the the first weekend of the season these days when there are games on Thursday and Friday, and I have hopefully some time and some ability to drive from one to the other and, and do that sort of thing. So um, like I mentioned 
uh, back in uh, our previous podcast. I did make all of these games, so that's good. The things that I said I was going to do. Um, it was at uh, Manchester at Trine on Thursday night, uh, Milliken at Hope on Friday, and then uh, Concordia Chicago versus Boyd on Saturday afternoon, Anderson versus North Park on Saturday evening. We'll touch on each of those games somewhere in the rundown, but also I had a, 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 a couple of hours at uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, to talk with the people who are going to be hosting the 2020 and 2021 Stag Bowl. That's something that we'll also talk about maybe later on a, another podcast or on one of our Friday podcasts. But, uh, Keith, it is impressive. It's going to be an amazing, amazing event for the student-athletes and for the fans if they can stay warm enough when, uh, when the championship gets there in a couple of years. And that is a couple of years down the road in the in the. The other thing that would be amazing if it happens is if Mount Union makes it. Mount Union is in the part of Ohio which uh, Canton newspaper covers Mount Union. Like that's how close it is. It's yeah. a it's a, a stone's throw, a hop, skip, and a jump, whatever phrase you want to use there. So if Mount Union makes it to one of those two title games, it, there's a chance of a record-setting crowd at a stag bowl. I think not only a chance, but I think. Uh, of course, unless the record gets set uh, and put out of reach here in the next couple of years, uh, I would think that uh, 12,000 would be like the minimum bar you would set for a stag bowl involving Mount Union in Canton, Ohio. And the the thought of a Mount Union John Carroll stag bowl in one of those two years would have me think about taking all the tarps off the stadium. It seats about 20,000 or so in its permanent configuration, and they bring in more seats, obviously, for the uh, Hall of Fame game for the uh, NFL preseason. Uh, as a point of introduction for those who are perhaps tuning us in for the first time on a regular season podcast, we each run down a few categories for games, giving out game balls, talking about teams that will rise or slide in the top 25. We'll look at a highlight that's off the beaten path. We'll pull out a surprising result and then a stat of the week, and then Keith and I will uh, share some other thoughts in the course of this podcast. But uh, I'd like to take this time, however, to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by none of y'all. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence the decisions to uh, replace turf. Oh, I saw some great new turf on my uh, on my trip out uh, on my trip out for the first week of the season. That's something I'll have to talk about at some point too. Um, but those are all things where you can reach the people who are going to spend the money by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Uh, Keith and I would wax poetic about your product right here before going to break. And uh, today I would be popping peas all over the place. I apologize to the listeners. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to work on that. Um, but uh, think about sponsoring the podcast. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because you're missing out. Let's start with game balls. And Keith, I'm going to give my game ball to a kid who did something in an event that isn't even officially considered a game. Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. We're talking about practice. My game ball is going to Guilford offensive player. I don't know where to slot him. Derek Bell. He ran for three touchdowns, returned a punt for a fourth touchdown in a game in which Huntington led 58 to 48 after 47 minutes, but it was unable to be completed because of incessant lightning in the Greensboro, North Carolina area. The game was delayed for four hours before it was finally called. So these stats don't count, but unlike teams who you know played opponents from club teams or played a team from Mexico this past weekend, this was a game that would have counted, and that's good enough for me. I'm going to give Derek Bell my game ball. Good thing you went first because now I can scratch off, point out how ridiculous declaring that game a no contest is off my list of things to mention. 
As for our game ball, let's go all special teams all the time. Mine goes to Rowan's Elijah Rim, an East Stroudsburg transfer, who had 254 kick return yards in his Profs debut. He took a kick back 83 yards for a score after Widener's first touchdown, and he took one back 100 yards after the Pride kicked the field goal with just less than six minutes to go to go up 31-24. Rim will take it out from the end zone. 20, 25, 30! With room to midfield! He's gone! To the 20, 10, 5! Touchdown! That's Derek Jones on the call for WGLS. That score tied the game, and it held up as Rowan, coming off a 4-6 and six season, its first sub-500 mark since 2007, rallied to beat Widener in double overtime. I love the nicknames we have in Division Three football. I'm going to speak a little bit to the new people, I think, throughout this podcast, a little bit like we did before, but Profs is a great nickname. Love that we have that in Division Three. My team on the rise coming out of this weekend's games is Brockport. I had them five on my ballot, which was already slightly above the average. Uh, there was plenty of room for the Golden Eagles to move up overall on other people's ballots, and they definitely did. Last year's defeat of Hobart was one thing, but this was just pure dominance. 56-7 to victory on Saturday for the Golden Eagles of Brockport. I'll agree with you there. This, though, was one of the easiest ballots I've ever filed. Aside from Delaware Valley, which lost to a higher-ranked team in Wesley, Everyone I had on my ballot won, and most of them looked good doing so. The four teams that the top 25 poll had that I didn't have all won as well, and so did the handful of teams beyond 25 that I usually keep an eye on. One that should rise, even though the record will reflect nothing, is Huntington. That game, as you mentioned, was 58-48 with 13 minutes left, which means if my math is correct and they continued on pace, voters can consider that a 74-61 win, even though it never officially happened. I moved Huntington into my number 25 spot for the offense alone, even though that's the kind of defense that'll get you beaten. If that's too much of a stretch because they're not really ranked, I also think voters might rearrange the WIAC teams a bit to UW-Whitewater's benefit. This is the spot on the podcast where we talk about the teams that slide in our ballot or that will fall in the poll. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. But I didn't have anybody take a big slide in my poll. Kind of like you were just talking about, Keith. It was a pretty easy week to vote. Nobody in the top 25 got upset. Nobody on my ballot did either. So while I nudged Platteville around a little bit, I already wasn't voting for Delaware Valley. And yeah, there just uh, wasn't much else I could really do. UW Oshkosh is my father. It wasn't fair to expect them to continue at a stag bowl level pace after Gallardi Trophy winner and three or four year starter Brett Casper graduated. But we didn't expect that offense to only score two touchdowns, the latter giving them a 14-9 lead at Carthage with 125 left. On one hand, Carthage is not a bad program, and I think you have to give credit to teams who play solid competition and find a way to win. Oshkosh drove for a go-ahead score, and first-team All-America linebacker Derek Jennings shut the door by returning his third interception for a touchdown. But that's not number three, number four team in the country level performance either. Even if you look at just the WIAC, where both Whitewater and Platteville were also opening against opponents who will probably have winning seasons, the Warhawks slowly imposed their will and pulled away for the 38-6 win at Dubuque. The Pioneers rallied for the, from a, the 20-point halftime deficit with that 35-point third quarter to win in Texas, 59-44. I think you'd have to judge either of those results as superior to what Oshkosh did week one and adjust your ballots accordingly. Yeah, see, I already had Oshkosh at number eight. 
I didn't feel like I could drop them any further. In the final analysis, uh, Oshkosh was almost 100 points ahead of Brockport in the preseason poll, and now they're just five points ahead. What we were talking about earlier with Wesley is relevant here, too. People don't want to hear or consider the possibility that Oshkosh might take a step back this year, but it took the Titans a couple of down years before they found the next Nate Wera, and, and I cast my preseason ballot on the belief that they don't have their next Brett Casper yet either. And, uh, you know, they went 10 for 19 passing for 39 yards, so I think that bears out. Well, I think it's certainly fair to judge a team that's coming off a run with a great quarterback or a great offense or a great defense. And a lot of that's graduated. We, you know, we penalized uh, Delaware Valley, for example, on the ballot for having only seven starters back. You could certainly do the same thing with Oshkosh. I think the tough thing when you get up in the top five is figuring out who else deserves to be number three. And the way uh, Oshkosh played last season and the number of playmakers they still had back offensively, not just defensively, as we saw with Derek Jennings. I thought they had enough back on offense to help the quarterback ease in. Uh, they didn't look great on uh, Saturday, but maybe give them the benefit of the doubt or at least give them one more week to, uh, to, to prove themselves. I moved them down a little bit on the ballot. Um, as I said, adjust because of the, the three WIAC results. I thought it was fair to adjust accordingly. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot, as you mentioned, Pat, to move around in the top 25. Moving on to the off-the-beaten-path highlight. Uh, mine is the three interceptions that Gary Anish had in North Park's 28-13 win versus Anderson on Saturday night. One was an amazing diving catch in the first half. Another was a nice catch in traffic in the fourth quarter. And uh, North Park was in the end zone two plays later to put that game away. I spent my Thursday and Friday seeing games involving top 50 teams. And Saturday, I spent the entire day well off the beaten path. Anish's performance was the best thing I witnessed on Saturday. Plus, since I was there, I brought a clip. Do we have time for a clip? D-line was given a great rush. Communication was there. Right place, right time. Made the catch as best as I could. That's about it. I'm thinking of specifically of one before halftime. You made this uh, pretty impressive diving catch over here in front of your own sidelines. How did A, how did that feel, and kind of what was the reaction of the, of the guys as you did that right in front of them? Uh, it's a feeling that's honestly indescribable. Uh, I didn't think I was going to get there, and my, I trusted my body. I trusted my teammates, got up, and I felt like I won a million dollars. My team was there to greet me, and it's the best feeling in the world. The Heidelberg Olivet score probably wasn't much of a shock. And 21 to 17 are easy numbers to glaze over. But a couple podcast-worthy things happened in this game, part of a 9-1 non-conference weekend for the OAC. The student princes, we're calling them student princes now. Yeah, they are they they go they've gone back and forth, but they've stayed at student princes for a few years now. I I didn't know whether or not to slide that joke in there. They were the Berg at one point. The, the, anyway, some yeah, like one sports information director insisted on us calling them the Berg, and the next person the next year said why are you calling us the Berg? Anyway, the student princes scored two touchdowns in the final five and a half minutes to rally for the win. And even more, a freshman linebacker wearing number 82 had five and a half tackles for losses, including three sacks. Zachary Blackiston and Heidelberg are my off the beaten path highlight of the week. I love that. A, a freshman linebacker wearing number 82 kind of says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you recruit a jillion guys and sometimes you have more than uh, more than 99. And uh, you don't even know, you know, you have a, a 82 on offense, 82 on defense, but it does say it all. You maybe weren't expecting to get quite as much out of them as, as they got on Saturday. My most surprising result of week one actually wasn't super surprising, so I apologize. But it was really nice to see, and this is a good place to talk about it, 
Uh, that's Alvernia defeating Gallaudet. We all thought in quick hits that Alvernia was the team more likely to have a positive first weekend. Number 243 hosting number 224 in front of a capacity crowd. Uh, you know, carry the one, add a half a cup of flour. Yeah, that's probably a push on paper. So when the Golden Wolves came out with the win in the end, it may not have been surprising, but it was definitely a cool story. Yeah, first game in program history and first win as well. I didn't think there were many surprising results either, but the last game of the week, Averett's 33-14 victory over Hampton Sydney on Sunday was a bit of a stunner. It wasn't that long ago that the Tigers were the best football program in Virginia, and now they're three touchdowns short of Averett. I'm surprised. Yeah, got to be honest with you. That's pretty surprising. Uh, my stat of the week is actually about the compilation of stats in Division Three football. I'll try to keep the inside baseball stuff to a minimum here, but uh, the basics that people probably need to know a little bit about this. Sports information directors were blindsided when StatCrew, who's like the Mountain Union of statistical software providers, drastically raised their renewal price shortly before the season. So lots of schools were sent scrambling. Some really struggled this weekend with the first games, with some box scores not being finalized until more than 24 hours after the games ended. Some of this was reflected on our scoreboard. Maybe people noticed it. I apologize for that. Hopefully everyone will have it sorted out for week two. I did not know any of that. So I appreciate your input inside baseball, football, whatever you want to call it. We would still use inside baseball for football stuff. And we use inside baseball for like politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it actually gets used a lot. So kind of a common cliche. Anyway, uh, my stat of the week, stats of the week. I think I have more than one. Uh, Salisbury had 662 yards of offense, more than every team who played in week one, except for Mount St. Joseph. All but eight of those yards were rushing yards. Springfield, meantime, had 445 yards of offense, including zero passing yards. Long live the triple option. Yeah, Chad Shade ran for 247 yards and six touchdowns on 22 carries in that win for Springfield, 42-21 to 21 score. That really dispels the adage about first-year starting quarterbacks in that offense, or uh, Keith, at least until a defense forces him to make the pitch instead of keeping it. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter. We take a question from listeners on every episode, and, and this one is no different. This is from Ron Clemens, who uh, goes by R. Clemens 3DP, uh, asking, do you expect changes in NFL tackling rules to significantly affect D3 officiating? Keith, I have to admit... Uh, I'm not sure if how this affects D3 officiating, but I, I'm willing to have a discussion about it and uh, about tackling in general. Yeah, I think we're still seeing the effects of rules that were implemented a few years ago in the college game, which has sometimes slightly different rules than the NFL. But as we probably all know, the NFL is the straw that stirs the drink. And when they make rules changes, they actually make them with the thought in mind that they'll trickle down to college, high school and youth football. And, and that's with a lot of the, the concussion protocol and the tackling changes and the changes on kickoffs, a lot of that was done with that in mind. You know, like maybe NFL players can handle some of the, the extra pounding, uh, not, not with the concussion stuff, but certainly, um, you know, tackling and, and they can take the hits. But, um, you know, you want to see the, the youth. Did you say youths? Yeah, two youths. What is a ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. To youths. Uh, you don't want to see those hits in, in the youth game. So I, I think we're still seeing the effects of the of the targeting rule uh, in college. 
Uh, saw it a couple times over the weekend, and I think part of it is um, because it's judgment call and it's somewhat arbitrary, um, and the penalty is so stiff. You know, a guy immediately tossed out of the game and, and can't come back. And uh, there's, if it happens in the first half, they get a chance to review it at halftime, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think we're still seeing the effects of that in, in college, and especially D3 right now, is, is grappling with how to uh, be as safe as possible with without making the game um, so much different from what it already is, for, for lack of a better way to put it. You saw it with, with the kickoffs, um, and I think the tackling, it's, it's just going to be a process. It takes a little time for it, for it to trickle down and for everyone to figure out how to deal with it. And so I don't think there's a direct effect right now with the, with the, the stuff that the NFL is grappling with, try, how to enforce any leading with the head contact. But uh, we're still a couple years from, from really – or we're a couple years in to the targeting rule, and we haven't quite figured it out in D3 yet, I think. One way in which it will affect officials, maybe, if not officiating, is uh, something that I see kind of every time I'm at a game and uh, working the sidelines instead of working the press box or any time I get a chance to really hear what fans have to say and what they have to say directed at officials, shall we say. I, people do not understand the differences in rules from one game to the from one level of the game to the next. We had a, a, a game uh, in the game at Hope, the Millican Hope game. Milliken receiver made a great catch, got a foot down, got out of bounds, and everybody was all up in arms about it, I think because he didn't get two feet down. And it's like people don't understand some of even the basic differences between the game at the college level and at the pro level. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to expect them to understand some of the more subtle things. Yeah, and and to be honest, you and I, Pat, you know, we do the best we can. We don't broadcast games every week. And I think it kind of helps to to see games every week and to broadcast them for officials to work them. We we at the Stag Bowl sometimes we need to pull pull Frank aside yeah. because Frank uh, does some uh, officiating in his spare time and have him explain application of rules to us. We've had times where when they bring that uh, that video um, up for the for the semifinals in the Stag Bowl and they do video reviews, yeah. we have to go through that every year because we don't see it week to week. So I mean, on one hand, you, you can't blame people but at the same time you never want to hear like people yell they're yelling at the officials how stupid they are and they're just dead wrong i'm playing the music we're still gonna do this right every thought of yours that that didn't get cut in the new rundown right well you're boss so if it's cut it's cut but i i think it's still in every thought of of yours is a friend of mine uh has there ever been a week in which FDU, Florham, Lawrence, Rockford, and Sewanee each won? I'd have our research department look it up if we had one. I think that might be a first. You know what? That's probably not impossible to find out. I'll, I'll play researcher on this one. Please hold. Okay, so Rockford has only had a football program since 2000. That makes this a little easier. Uh, they've only won 14 games in the past 10 years, so that makes it uh, easier as well. But they used to clean up in the UMAC, 59 wins in the program's history. I go through uh, 
2000. There's no, yeah, there's nothing worth noting. Uh, I note a handful of times here in which three of the teams won on the same week. Uh, the week of September 8th in 2001, Lawrence, Rockford, and FDU Florham all won. Then you have to go to 2004 uh, to find a week in which uh, Rockford, FDU Florham, and Sewanee all won. Now, 2005 is where this is really going to come to a head because Lawrence was 4-5 and five that year. Rockford was 7-3, and three, Sewanee was 5-5, five and, five, and FDU Florham was 4-6. and six. But even then, it, it, with all of that, there's only one week in which they all won on the same week. Uh, the week of October 22nd, 2005, Lawrence beat, beat Grinnell, Rockford beat Blackburn, Sewanee beat Rose Holman, and FDU Florham beat Albright. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, Keith, if you felt like you wanted to disqualify that one because uh, Blackburn's program got discontinued shortly thereafter, then we wouldn't have anything else. Uh, in the uh, 12 years since then, there's been only one other week in which three of those four teams all won on the same week before we get to, of course, this past weekend. Yo, shout out to you for being editor, publisher, and research department. I did not think, I basically did that because I was too lazy to look it up myself. And here you were coming through. 19 years, it's happened only one other time. And that's a, it's a kind of a random collection of teams, but uh, you know, you know, Lawrence and Rockford and Sewanee and FDU Forum have all had their, uh, more than their fair share of down years. Uh, here's another thought. Albright got mollywopped at Salisbury, which can't bode well for having second-ranked Mary Harden Baylor visit next week. That raises a question for me. So is is it 34 points that makes it a mollywopping, or is there some margin between the 21-point monkey stomp and the 34-point margin of the Albright loss that qualifies for mollywopping? Yeah, I believe you have to go deep into D3 boards to figure out where the line between monkey stomp and mollywop is. Keith, I saw a bunch of kickoffs this weekend, and I never once saw a player take the new fair catch where you can take a fair catch inside the 25 and get the ball on the 25. Was I overthinking it? I, I still think eventually it'll catch on, and I know it happened elsewhere, but I was kind of surprised that I didn't see it once. Yeah, a little surprised to me too. For all the success stories, the programs that debut football and are contending by year four or five, sort of a common thing we talk about on the podcast, it's hard to shake the feeling that for some programs, it's just never going to happen. Anna Maria, after nine wins in nine seasons, started out year 10 on Saturday with a 54-0 loss to WPI. Greensboro, meantime, has gone 20 seasons without once finishing above 500, and it's hard to see season number 21 being the year that the Pride hit six wins or more after they began with a 34-13 loss to Newport News Apprentice, a non-D3. I should quickly talk about the other games from my weekend quadruple header. Trine and Manchester looked like they basically did not belong in the same field together. Lamar Carswell especially just looked like a man among boys. That's the Trine running back. He went for 162 yards and three touchdowns on 13 carries. Yeesh, 13 carries. Hope and Milliken were pretty evenly matched on Friday night, if a little sloppy. Uh, I'm not sure if Hope can contain the Trine offense enough to win the MIAA, and Milliken will definitely need to play better to challenge for the top four in the CCIW. For Concordia Chicago, Lance Moyes, the running back, looked really good against Beloit, but they put him back in the game for a carry with about five minutes left, and he had to be helped off the field after it. Ouch. Yeah. When your conference hits 10 teams, that means you have nine games built in and just one opportunity to play non-conference. The OAC made the most, or almost made the most of its chance, going 9-1. and one. Only Capitals' loss to Mount St. Joseph prevented a clean sweep. Meantime, the nine-team SAA went 8-1, and one with four teams allowing either zero or three points and Sewanee surrendering just 10 to Kenyon. 
And nobody in the SAA or OAC beat any top 25 teams, but both represented their conference as well. Well, in fairness, only one team all week beat a top 25 team. So that was just that kind of week. Uh, Yeah, I didn't need the research department to look that one up. Keep an eye out for more on this later in the week. But uh, some former D3 players making the 53-man roster for NFL teams to open the season for the first time. Brandon Zilstra. For the Vikings, Dan Arnold for the New Orleans Saints, Jake Kumaro for the Packers, and Matt Gono for the Falcons. Keith is going to remind everybody where those four guys played their D3 college ball. Ooh, off top. I'll go from the bottom, actually, off bottom. Okay. Gano, Wesley, Gono, Wesley. Jake Kumaro, UW Whitewater. Give me Dan Arnold. Uh, that's a, he's a, a Platteville wide receiver. Brandon Zilstra. Concordia Moorhead, do you remember? That him? was going to, yeah, yeah, we did him and Garrett, what's the guy's name? The, well, the quarterback. Uh, see Garrett that. Neal, is that his name? Yeah, I think that, I hope so. That sounds about right. We had we had Neal on the podcast in February of uh, 2017. You can look it up. So we'll be back with another podcast coming up later this week. That's where we'll talk about the slate of games that's coming up in week two. So keep an eye and an ear out for that in your podcast player as this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 200 released on September 3rd of 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on our coverage throughout the rest of the week. If you like our podcast, you got to rate it. Rate it in whatever podcast player you use. Rate it in other places. You know, rate it on, uh, I don't know, Tinder. I don't know. I'm not sure that'll be helpful. But uh, wherever you want to do, swipe, swipe right. Swipe writers or we swipe left. I don't, I don't tend to. Yeah, man, we've been married too long to know, know which one. Left is bad, right? Yeah, I think left is bad, right? So or swipe. Left is good, right is bad. Swipe right on uh, the. I hope we swipe whatever the right way is. You can hear me uh, turning red. Anyway, whatever you do, help other D3 football fans find it. Uh, you can leave comments on the blog page as well, and uh, we'll be glad to uh, read those. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and audio on this edition. Thank you to Gordon Mann for providing that. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos. You can find it at djmentos.com. Thanks to guest Chip Knapp and Gary Anish, as well as sports information directors for uh, uh, Cyril Parham. And see, I didn't write this down. Tyler, my man over at North Park. I'm just going to leave this in. But thanks for your help. We needed that too. Thanks, of course, also to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I am at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com, and you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. Tyler. It was Griffin Neal. Griffin Neal. It's Tyler Woodbright, I think, right? Griffin Neal from Concordia Moorhead. Tyler Woodbright from North Park. Tyler Woolbright. So close. Sorry, Tyler. Michael Joseph. He didn't, he didn't make the Bears. Uh, Bears 53-man roster. So let's see. I've already forgotten Michael. That's a cut, right? Yep. They cut 25 players, including Michael Joseph. Okay. They probably put him on practice squad. But yeah, still. exactly. Somebody will. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.